today, so we won't have them with us this morning, so we'll seem a little lighter than we normally do today, but I'm glad you all are here. What a difference one day makes, doesn't it? It was like in the 70s yesterday, and now I think they've even projected we may have snow flurries, but that's Indiana, right? What'd you say? Wait five. Wait five. Five minutes even, right? Well, so you can wait in five minutes, and five, in five hours you can have winter and then summer again. I, so, Well, if you guys remember, I'm going to kind of do a little review here. If you remember, the seventh trumpet sounded back in chapter 11. Whoops, I forgot to turn my button. Hold on. There we go. The seventh trumpet sounded way back in chapter 11. But the bowl judgments associated with the seventh trumpet aren't described until chapter 15. So, that means chronologically, chapter 15 follows chapter 11. So if you remember... Chapters 12, 13, and 14 aren't chronological. Instead, they give us some additional supplemental information that helps us understand the context that we're learning. They take us back and fill in some background information, as well as have us look forward and give us a panoramic view of things to come. So remember, back in chapter 12, we were introduced to two signs or visions that John had, and the first sign was a great red dragon. Do you remember who that is? Who's the dragon? Satan, okay? The second sign or vision was a woman with child. Do you remember who the woman is? And who's the child? Oh, you didn't sound very confident on that. Who's the woman? And who's the child? Jesus. Okay, there we go. And then we learn how this war between Satan and God started. Way back in eternity past, Satan wanted to be worshipped in place of God, remember? And so he convinced a third of the angels to rebel against God with him. But they were kicked out of heaven. And then he decided he was going to go after the most beloved creation of God. And so he, remember, he deceived Adam and Eve into rebelling against God and plunged mankind into sin and death. And then he stripped them of the authority and dominion of the earth that God had entrusted to Adam and Eve. And because of this, God promised that the seed of the woman would eventually come and crush Satan's head. And so ever since then, Satan has been fighting to prevent his destruction and his demise. Now last week, we learned about two additional visions that John had of two beasts who will be agents of Satan during the seven-year tribulation. Now, some of you asked me last week if I could come up with some kind of a visual to help you kind of keep all of this in, in place. So here's, I did my best, okay? Um, if we have the screen where you're comparing Satan, I mean, Antichrist and Christ, um, the first beast that John saw was this beast that came up out of the sea, he is, this is the Antichrist, okay? And he's going to be a man that Satan will give his power and authority to. And as Donna reminded us last week, the Antichrist is not going to look like a beast on the outside. In fact, he's going to be very attractive. 
He's going to be a persuasive communicator, very likable. But as you compare the Antichrist with Jesus Christ, you see that his nature and character is basically the exact opposite of that of Jesus. Because he's going to be empowered by Satan, this master deceiver and counterfeiter. Satan is going to use whatever means necessary to counterfeit God and his gospel in order to attract humanity to follow and worship him. So if you look at these lists, you can see that Christ came down from heaven and is holy. But the Antichrist is going to come up from the sea of humanity full of sin and evil. Christ looks like his father who is truth and the giver of life. The Antichrist is going to look like his father, Satan, who is a liar and a murderer. Christ humbled himself and came to do his father's will. The Antichrist will exalt himself and come to do not only his will, but Satan's will as well. Christ, as the Lamb of God, takes away the sin of the world. The Antichrist and Satan through him will entice people to sin. Christ was by and large rejected by men, but the Antichrist will by and large be accepted by men. So that kind of gives you a glimpse into the beastly character of the Antichrist. He'll be a political and a military leader that will initially rise as a peacemaker, remember, but halfway into the tribulation, he's going to show his beastly colors. And he'll turn on Israel, break a seven-year covenant that he made with them, and then set himself up in the temple as God and demand that everyone in the entire world worship him. Now the second beast, the beast that comes up out of the earth, is described as one who looks like a lamb but spoke like a dragon. Do we have that next slide where it compares all three? This is going to be a religious leader that the Bible calls the false prophet. His mission will be to promote the worship of the Antichrist. And again, he's going to sound very appealing, very persuasive, very likable. But eventually he's going to force all people to take the mark of the beast. Who's the beast again? No. Satan is the dragon. Who is the beast? The Antichrist. See, that's why we got to keep all these things in our head. The great, Satan is the great dragon. The beast is the Antichrist. And then the second beast is the false prophet. So the false prophet, his job is going to be to force people or encourage people to worship the beast or the Antichrist and to take his mark to show proof of their loyalty and worship of him. Now, you were right in one sense, that when they are worshiping the Antichrist, essentially they are worshiping Satan, right? Because Satan is the one who's behind Antichrist. But those who refuse to take the mark of the beast will be hunted down and killed. Now, Donna shared with us last week five things that this mark of the beast represents. Ownership. Those who worship the beast are marked as belonging to him. Loyalty. Those who worship the beast are marked as his devoted followers. It represents security and dependency. Because those who bear the mark of the beast show acceptance of the beast's authority and are therefore permitted to buy and sell. 
And that results in complete dependence on him. And then finally, it also represents safety. Because without the mark, they'll be cut off from the basic necessities of life and either starve to death or they'll be killed. So during the tribulation, a person's whole life and physical well-being will be tied to the beast. Now, at the end of chapter 13, things look mighty grim, don't they? All hell is breaking loose on earth, literally. And it almost looks as if Satan and the Antichrist might win. But when we come to chapter 14, we're told what ultimately happens to those who take the mark of the beast versus those who receive the mark and the seal of God. We're shown the consequences of receiving each of those marks and we'll get a preview of who will ultimately triumph in the end. Now, John's watching all this, right? And after seeing Satan and his two henchmen in complete control, in domination, in, in, in completely deceiving the entire world, John probably had an overwhelming sense of loss and defeat, don't you think? But the Lord in this chapter says, not so fast. And he gives John three short visions which preview the things to come. He first sees those who have been sealed in the Lord standing victoriously with Jesus at the end of the tribulation, assuring John and us that God's promises are true and that those who are sealed as his will overcome. John's then shown what will happen to those who choose to worship the beast and take his mark instead of God's seal. So it's like God shows John these two groups of people, side by side. Those with the mark of the beast, who are worshiping the Antichrist, or ultimately Satan, and those with God's seal and God's mark and are dedicated to Jesus. And he shows the eternal destiny of each of these groups. And then he gives, shows uh, an angel giving one final warning and a call to all those who have yet to put their trust in the Lord. Gives them one more opportunity for salvation before the final harvest or judgment begins and the wrath of God is unleashed. That's a preview of chapter 14. Okay. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to chapter 14. And we'll read through that together. Now, as we read through here... I want you to watch for the phrase, then I looked, or then I saw. Keep your eyes looking for those, that little phrase, then I looked, or then I saw. That's going to tell you and identify these three visions that John was given as a preview. Uh, he, he saw the return of Jesus the ju- and the judgment to come. So watch out for that little phrase. And before we jump in, let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to be our teacher, shall we? Father, as we open this portion of your word, we are reminded that this is your book that you have preserved down through all these centuries. And we have the privilege of being able to hold it in our hand and read the very word of God. And you've given it to us for our learning, Lord. And so as we open our Bibles and we start to read and study we ask that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. 
Because it's only through the Holy Spirit that we're able to understand what you want to teach each one of us here this morning. And we know that we have your promise that he will be here and will be our teacher. So give us ears to hear what he has to say. And more importantly, give us the wills and the hearts to put it into practice, whatever he tells us. And it's in Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Okay, have you turned to chapter 14? All right, let's dive in. It says, Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among men and offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the internal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who has made the heavens and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured out full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and his image. For anyone who receives the mark of his name, this calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey Jesus' commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. All right. Verse 1 starts out with that little phrase, Then I looked. This is that phrase that indicates that this is the first of the three visions that John describes in this chapter. So in contrast to the two beasts in chapter 13, John now sees the lamb. Now do you remember who the lamb is? Who's the lamb? Okay. We've met him many times in this book, right? This is Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John now sees Jesus, the Lamb, standing in triumph on Mount Zion at the end of the tribulation. Now, Christ's second coming doesn't take place until chapter 19. But remember, chapters 12, 13, and 14 aren't chronological. In this chapter, John is given a panoramic view of what's to come. 
Now, Mount Zion can refer to both a hill near the city of Jerusalem or the city of Jerusalem itself. It was the capital city of King David, the place chosen by God for his presence to dwell in the temple. And many Old Testament scriptures prophecy, prophesy about a future time during the millennium when Jesus, the greater son of David, will reign over the earth from Mount Zion. Now listen to what some of these Old Testament um, scriptures say, okay? Psalm 2.6 says, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. Isaiah 2, 1-3 says, This is what Isaiah saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of, of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his way so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And finally, Isaiah 24:23 says, The Lord Almighty will reign on Mount Zion and Jerusalem with great glory. So these scriptures indicate that the center of control during the millennial reign will be on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And that's where John sees that Jesus standing. And standing on Mount Zion with Jesus, John sees 144,000. Do you remember who they are? We met them back in chapter 7, remember? They are these 144,000 Jewish believers. They've come to uh, recognize Jesus as their Messiah after the rapture. God sealed them and protected them with um, his name on their foreheads. And then um, they faithfully served as his witnesses, preaching his truth during the tribulation. Now remember, at the end of chapter 13, we're told that the Antichrist followers will be identified by his mark on their foreheads or right hand. And that will be visible proof of their loyalty to Antichrist and Satan. Remember, Satan is a counterfeiter, right? He tries to copy everything Christ does. Here in chapter 14, we see the 144,000 faithful followers of the Lamb who have a mark written on their foreheads, the name of the Father and of the Son, and that symbolizes God's mark of ownership. And in both cases, this mark is the name of the one that, to whom these people have given their loyalty. People are going to declare who their master is by whose mark they bear. The destiny of every person is determined by the mark that that person has and carries. Okay, Keep that in mind because we're going to talk about that a little bit later. John has shown these 144,000 standing with Jesus, the Lamb, on Mount Zion at the end of the tribulation. And notice how many are standing with Jesus. There are 143,000. There aren't 143,999. How many are still standing? 144,000. Not one of them has been lost. They all emerge victorious from the Great Tribulation. Now, the Antichrist and the false prophet will unleash the most terrible persecution the world has ever seen during this time, and they're going to slaughter multitudes of people. And it's going to seem impossible that anyone will be able to survive without taking the mark of the beast. And yet, 
We see 144,000 standing here on Mount Zion having survived both Satan's persecution and remember they've also survived God's judgments on the sinful world. In chapter 7, they are seen at the beginning of the tribulation and in chapter 14 here they stand in triumph at the end of the tribulation when Jesus returns to begin his millennial kingdom reign on this earth. That will fulfill many Old Testament prophecies that the nation of Israel will one day be restored to the land God had promised them under their Messiah, King. And these 144,000 Jewish men will be the first fruits of the, the Messianic kingdom. Remember in the Old Testament, first fruits were the first part of the crop to be harvested and dedicated to the Lord. The fact that these are first fruits means that there will be more to follow. These 144,000 Jews represent the first of many others who will be saved during the tribulation. And that is going to foreshadow, when we get farther into it, it's going to foreshadow that the nation of Israel will be saved when Jesus returns. Now verse verse 3 says these 144,000 will be able to sing a song that couldn't be learned by anybody else. This could be a special reward for their dedication to God. We don't know what that song is because I've never heard it. With all the devastation and the destruction that they've experienced, all the rejection and the hostility and the hatred and the persecution that they've had to endure, and all the death and all the carnage that they've seen, we might expect them to be too traumatized to be able to sing, wouldn't you think? But verse 3 says that they will lift their voices and joyously praise the Lord in song. And no one could sing to the Lord what they could because no one had been sealed and preserved by God like they had been and had gone through what they had gone through during the darkest period in earth's history. Now this is a reminder of the uniqueness of all the groups that will be in heaven. As we've gone through uh, Revelation, we've seen different songs and different groups of people singing different songs. It's like each group has their own special song. And it reminds reminds us of the uniqueness of every believer. None are better or less than others. We're all unique. We've all been equipped and called by God at different times, with different tasks and different purposes. And the task of the 144,000 was different than any others on earth. But we aren't in competition with anybody else. We aren't to compare ourselves with anybody else. We're simply called to do what, or we're simply to do what God has called each one of us to do in the power of the Holy Spirit because no one else has been called by God to do exactly what he's called you to do and in the time frame that he's called you to do it. And in the way he calls you to do it, we're all unique. Now look at verses 4 and 5. During the darkest days ever on earth, these 144,000 will be very different from those who dwell on the earth. They're going to stand out. In the darkness of the tribulation, these 144,000 witnesses are going to stand out from the culture. And they're going to shine like beacons, shining forth God's truth through their lives. Um, It says that they um, will not defile themselves by being with women. Now, there's different opinions on what that means. Some say that these 144,000 will remain unmarried and celibate, 
Others say that they might be married, but they won't um, break their marriage vows. Remember, during this time, sexual sin is going to be rampant. I can't imagine it being any worse than it is now, but ladies, it will be, I guess. Others believe that this is symbolic, referring to their spiritual purity, that they will stay spiritually pure to God, and they will remain faithful to Christ and refuse to be involved with the Satan and uh, the worldly system around them. But whichever interpretation is right, we can be sure of two things. That during the tribulation, it will be very, very difficult for these men to be married, good husbands and fathers, but that these 144,000 will remain pure. Probably physically, if they're, if they're pure spiritually, then they will be pure physically as well, right? So they'll, they'll remain pure in spite of living in a world filled with sexual sin and immorality like has never been seen before. And ladies, this is an example to us to follow. Even though our calling may be different, God wants each one of us who claims to be his to live lives separated to him and not commit adultery with the world. Remember, you and I are instruments for God. Lights that bear his name. And when we stand apart from our culture, then we are mighty weapons in God's hand against Satan and his kingdom of darkness. It's when we start to dabble in the world's culture and we don't look so much different from the culture that we don't shine and God can't use us as his tools against Satan. Verse 4 also says these 144,000 followed the lamb wherever he goes. They're going to be completely loyal to Jesus no matter the cost because they understand the tremendous price Jesus paid for them, that he purchased them with his own blood. And so they're willing not only to believe in him, but they're willing to take up the cross and suffer for his sake. Also, in contrast to all these lies coming out of the mouths of the Antichrist and the false prophet, verse 5 says that no deceit is found in the mouths of the 144,000. They're going to share the truth of the word of God without wavering or faltering or altering it in any way question I have for us is, do we? Do we share God's truth? Do we stand apart in our culture and shine? I mean, their ministry and their lives give us a pattern for all of us to be following. Now in verse 6, we see the second, then I saw, phrase in this chapter, indicating the beginning of another vision that John saw. In this second vision... John saw three angels carrying three messages. The first angel preaches the gospel. The second angel pronounces judgment. And the third warns of eternal punishment. Look at verse 6. The first angel was flying in midair proclaiming the eternal gospel to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. Now, ladies, how long is eternal? forever okay and who is the gospel for everyone the whole world it says the eternal gospel that's the original gospel from god it's the same for every agent all people there is only one gospel there is no other 
And this eternal gospel stands in contrast to the false gospel that the beast and the false prophet are promoting. And this angel's message is going to counteract their deceptive lies. Now, up to this point, God had never used angels to proclaim the gospel. He sent them to proclaim the birth of Jesus, but he never sent them to proclaim the gospel until now. He always used men to proclaim the gospel. Remember before Jesus returned to heaven after he um, was um, crucified and rose again, he gave the message, message, the mission of proclaiming the message of the gospel to the church. Remember? And that mission has continued down to us today. But that's going to change after the rapture. But God is not going to leave the world without his witnesses or the gospel. During the tribulation, God is going to provide 144,000 Jewish witnesses. And he's also going to provide the other two witnesses we read about, remember? The two witnesses who were killed. And they're going to proclaim the gospel after the rapture of the church. And then here in chapter 14, we see that God will even send an angel to fly back and forth in the sky at the very end. He's going to fly back and forth in the sky throughout the world, proclaiming the gospel one final time, calling people to turn to him before judgment comes. Now, do you remember at the beginning of the year I said Jesus gave us an outline of the end times in Matthew 24? Matthew 24, 14 says, The gospel must be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end shall come. Well, I believe this is when this will finally happen here in Revelation 14, 6. An angel is going to fly through mid-heaven proclaiming the gospel to all the nations of the earth, and every single person on earth will hear it. Again, we see the principle of grace before judgment. Nobody is ever going to be able to say God was unfair. God's going to go to great lengths to give the world one last chance to be saved. This angel calls all the people of the earth to fear and worship God as the creator rather than Satan. Now remember, during the tribulation, the Antichrist is going to require all the people on earth to glorify and worship him as God. But this angel with the gospel calls people to fear and worship the living God and and give him glory. Because God is the one who created all things, including them. And because God is the creator of all things, all things belong to him. Right? If you create something, it belongs to you. So this angel is re-emphasizing God has created them. They belong to him, therefore he alone has their right has the right to be worshipped by them. So people are going to have two choices. Either to believe the lies of the Antichrist, who's backed by Satan, and worship him, or to fear God and worship him by turning to his son, Jesus. Now, we've talked about this before, but what does it mean to fear God? Well, Satan would want us to believe that it means to be scared to death or afraid of God, and that is a lie. God doesn't want us to be afraid of him. To fear God means to have a holy respect for him or a reverence to revere him. The beast is going to convince men that he's in charge of the world, that he's the one that should be revered, 
and that their destinies are in his hands. But the angel's message is that God is their creator and that they should revere and worship him because God is the one who holds their destinies in his hands, not the beast. So this is the final God call of God to lost humanity to recognize his sovereignty and to turn to him through Christ. Now in verse 8, following the first angel, we now see a second angel with a message of judgment. And he cries out, Fallen! Fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. Again, John is, is given a preview of the events, or which will be described in more detail in chapters 17 and 18. But this re- repetition of the word fallen points to the certainty and finality of the coming judgment. Now, Babylon is first mentioned back in Genesis chapters 10 and 11. It was a city founded by a man named Nimrod, who represented godless values. And shortly after being founded, the inhabitants of that city tried to build a tower to rival God. I'm sure all of you have probably heard of the Tower of Babel, right? That is the city of Babylon. And it was built in rebellion against God by people craving to fulfill their own desires. And from that time on, Babylon symbolized evil and rebellion against God. And the fallen world system, which is centered around self and fulfilling selfish desires, rather than being centered on God and fulfilling godly desires. Now, if you look around at our culture today, what do you see? You see the spirit of Babylon, don't you? That's what our world system is. Our world system is centered on satisfying our own desires, not on centered on God or, or satisfying godly desires. Now, when Babylon is mentioned in the Bible, it can refer to either the actual city or the world system that is opposed to God. Many people believe that the ancient city of Babylon will be rebuilt during the tribulation and will become the center of operations for the beast and the false prophet. But this spirit of Babylon will dominate the world under the influence of the Antichrist. Remember when the church is raptured, the, the, the influence of the Holy Spirit is removed. And so now all that dominates the world during that time will be the spirit of Babylon. And the second angel's announcement that the Antichrist um, world system or the spirit of Babylon and his um, world, the world system under the Antichrist, the most powerful system in human history, will be destroyed, that would be inconceivable to the beast's followers at that time. And verse 9 says that the third angel followed with the warning that those who worship the beast and his image and receive his mark would drink the cup of God's undiluted wrath. Now, how many of you remember the prayer that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane? Remember when he said, Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me? The cup that he's talking about is this cup of God's wrath right here. But do you remember what Jesus also said? Not my will, but thine, right? So Jesus willingly drank the cup of God's wrath for us on the cross. So now we have the choice. You either accept Christ's drinking of the, of the cup of God's wrath for you and accept, and accept that he took God's wrath in your place, 
or you'll have to drink the cup of God's wrath yourself. So this third angel is warning people, don't worship the beast and take his mark, or else you'll have to face the wrath of God. You'll have to drink this cup of wrath yourself. Now we learned in chapter 13 that without the mark of the beast, those living during the tribulation, they're not going to be able to buy or sell or get what they need to survive. So the pressure to take the beast's mark is going to be tremendous when it comes down to life and death. Think about, think about your children or your grandchildren. How long would you be able to last seeing them slowly starve to death? What if somebody said, all you have to do is to take the mark of the beast and you can get the food that they need to survive? What would you do? That would be a tough decision, wouldn't it? It's one thing to do it for your one thing to do it for and choose for yourself but to watch your kids or your grandkids well god is going to send this angel to encourage and strengthen those who are who may be growing weak and may be considering to cave in to the antichrist and this angel's message is to remind people of the eternal consequences and to remind them that you know martyrdom for their faith is far better than facing the eternal wrath of god Think about it. Those who refuse to take the mark of the beast will suffer the wrath of the beast. But the wrath of the beast is only temporary. The wrath of God lasts forever and ever. Look at verses 10 and 11. It says, Those who take the mark of the beast will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. Now God can't be any clearer than that, can he? Hell is real. I know a lot of people these days, they just think that that's just something Christians made up to scare people. But God shows us hell is real. Now stop and let that sink in for just a minute. Those who reject Christ and die without receiving God's forgiveness, they don't just cease to exist when they die. They aren't judged by God and then destroyed. The Bible says we are eternal beings, and we are going to live forever and ever in one of two places. We're going to live forever either in heaven or live forever in hell. Those who make the decision to take the mark of the beast and reject the one true God will seal their fate and will suffer in absolute torment forever. Now, would you rather suffer the short-term wrath of the Antichrist or the eternal wrath of God? That's the choice that these believers during the tribulation are having to face. Now let me stop here for just a minute and say that nobody is going to take the mark of the beast accidentally. Okay, I used to think and worry that someday I might take the mark of the beast and not realize it. I want to assure that if any of you are here today and you have that worry, let me put your mind at ease, that those who choose to receive the mark will do so with full knowledge of what they're doing. Okay, It's going to be very clear at that time the choice that they will make. Their choice will be deliberate. 
Now, of course, my prayer for you is that you won't ever have to make that choice because you will have chosen to put your trust in Jesus and be raptured before the tribulation. But that's up to you. But you won't be able to do it and fall into it accidentally, okay? So we've seen that there are some really bad eternal consequences for those who worship the beast and take his mark. But you know what, ladies? There are also some really good eternal consequences for those who choose to put their faith and trust in Jesus during the tribulation and are marked by him. The Lord will give believers in that day a special grace to endure and refuse the mark of the beast. And even though some of them will be martyred or starved to death because of their choice to stand strong in the Lord and refuse to take the beast's mark, look what verse 13 says. It says, they will be blessed. They will rest from their labor and, and their deeds will follow them. Believers who take their stand against the beast and die as a result of it are assured that they will be blessed throughout eternity for this. Now imagine what courage and comfort this passage is going to, will give to persecuted believers during the Great Tribulation Clearly, God wants to encourage his people to be strong in times of trial by focusing on the rest and the, the reward that awaits them in eternity. To have a heavenly perspective, not just an earthly perspective. Even though their lives on earth during the tribulation will be a hard and a difficult and a dangerous struggle for survival, and death will come as a welcome relief, they will rest in the presence of God. And he is going to reward them in heaven for their service to him. What a stark contrast that is to those who's going to, who will be condemned to hell and they won't know one minute of rest throughout all eternity. Think of the difference between those two groups. You know, the gospel always has two sides. On one side, there is love and joy and peace and salvation for those who accept Jesus Christ. That's one side of the gospel. But the other side of the gospel is that because God is just and has to judge sin, there is a literal hell that will be the consequence of rejecting Jesus. That's the other side of the gospel. Now, God will never send you to hell. Did you hear me? God will never send you to hell. But if you choose to go there, he cannot keep you out. It's a choice that you make. God doesn't send anyone to hell. People send themselves to hell. All the way through the book of Revelation, we're shown side by side, God and Satan, believers and unbelievers, Heaven and hell. All through that, the two groups are compared. Heaven for those who turn to faith and cling to Christ. Hell for those who choose to live without Christ and reject him. In the end, God will give everyone what they choose. So if you really want to deny God as your creator, and you don't want to have anything to do with him, you want to... You don't want to have him involved in your life. You don't want to worship him or submit to him. God will give you what you choose, okay? But remember, the choice that you make in this life will seal your eternal destiny. 
The truth is this, ladies. God is love. And he forgives. If you come to Jesus, he will wipe away all your sin. But if you reject Jesus, there is everlasting punishment as a consequence of your own choice. There is no in-between or setting on the fence with the gospel. People will either serve God or they will serve the beast. And we'll, we've seen throughout this book of Revelation and even in this chapter that God repeatedly and, and over and over and over again warns sinners and gives them opportunity after opportunity to repent. This first angel proclaimed the gospel and invited sinners to turn to God. The second angel warned of coming judgment, that Babylon, the, the fallen world system, and all who followed it would be destroyed. But if people still refuse to repent after God sends the gospel and gives them warnings, then they only have themselves to blame for the judgment and the eternal punishment that they will receive. Now in verse 14 we find the third I looked statement, indicating John's final vision described in this chapter, which is a preview of of God's eternal punishment. Here John sees Jesus sitting on a cloud, holding a sharp sickle, preparing to return to earth. And what a difference his second coming is going to be from his first. I don't know if we have that slide comparing the first and second coming. But Jesus came to earth the first time in humility as a servant. He'll come the second time in power as a judge. He came the first time to seek and save the lost. He'll come the second time to judge the living and the dead. He came the first time to suffer God's wrath for sinners. He'll come a second time to carry out his father's wrath on those who reject him. And as a conqueror to save the righteous from wrath. He came the first time to sow the seed of the gospel. He'll come the second time to reap the results of people hearing that gospel and the choices that they made. Now, when we hear the word reap the harvest, we often think about a good harvest, don't we? When you say, I'm going to reap the harvest, you think of a good harvest. But you have to remember that there's also a harvest of evil. Now, two harvests are depicted in this vision. A wheat harvest in verses 14 through 16, and a grape harvest in verses 17 through 20. Now let me read you a couple of um, Old Testament passages that contain striking parallels with Revelation 14. You might jot these down and look at them later, but just listen as I read them. First is Joel 3, 12 through 16. And Joel uses some of the same imagery. Listen to what it says. It says, Let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Same language, right? Come tread the wine, come tread, for the wine press is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. So we've got the sickle and the wine press together, right? Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon will be darkened, and the stars no longer shine. And the Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and the heavens will tremble, but the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. 
Now listen to Isaiah 63, 1 through 4. It says, Who is this who comes from Edom, from Basra, with his garments stained crimson? Who is this, robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength? It is I, proclaiming victory, mighty to save. Well, why are your garments red, like those of one treading the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone. From the nations, no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood spattered my garments, and I stained all my clothing. It was for me the day of vengeance, the year for me to redeem had come. That's striking to what we're reading here in Revelation 14, isn't it? Now Jesus also used the harvest analogy for judgment in the parable of the tares in Matthew 13. He said, allow both of them to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest, he said he would say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. And And when asked by the disciples to explain the parable, listen to what Jesus said. He said, the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are the angels. As the tares are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. And they will throw them into the blazing furnace furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now the three angels we just saw in the last vision uh, that John had gave the message that judgment was coming. Now, in verse 15, John sees a fourth angel with the command to execute judgment. The time for grace is over. There will be no more delay of judgment. The beast undoubtedly is going to promise his followers great things, but in the end, all they're going to find out is that they will face judgment from God and receive a horrifying punishment. Now, the word for ripe used here in verse 15 actually means dried up or rotten. It's picturing a harvest that's past the point of any usefulness and fit only to be gathered up and burned. So this is a picture of the judgment of unbelievers. And probably is a reference to the bold judgments, which will be described more in chapters 15 and 16 in more detail. Now, in verse 17, John sees two more angels, one with the sharp sickle and one who's in charge of the fire, and a harvest of grapes is described. Now, we just read that Joel and Isaiah described the judge's garments as stained red from the winepress of his wrath. When Christ came the first time, he shed his blood for men so that they could be saved. But now he's showing that these men have rejected it. And at his second coming, he is shown trampling down the wicked. Those who have rejected his offer of salvation, and it's now their blood that will be shed. This illustration of the grape harvest would have been very common for the people back in John's time. Because in John's day, they would cut the grapes from the vine, throw them into this large vat, and then stomp on them barefooted to crush the grapes and allow that juice to flow down into a second vat and be collected. Have any of you seen pictures of that or seen videos of that? 
Again, this is a picture of judgment of unbelievers. And it's probably a reference to the Battle of Armageddon, where the bloody carnage are going to look like crushed grapes in a wine press. And this is going to be described in more detail in chapters 16 and 19, so we're not going to go into it much today. We'll go into it more later. later. But both of these harvests here in chapter 14, I think, describe the final judgment and destruction of unbelievers on earth and of the world system that they follow. The wheat harvest may represent the swiftness of judgment, and the grape harvest may illustrate the severity of that judgment. Now, God is merciful and will delay judgment for as long as possible. But there's going to come a time when he'll say, I've had enough. And then the earth will experience his sharp sickle of judgment. Like grain being cut down by the harvester and grapes being cut from the vine and crushed, the enemies of of Christ will be cut off and reaped from the earth. And although this judgment will mean doom for the unsaved, Remember that two-sided coin? It will also mean salvation for his people. Jesus will return to destroy the Antichrist and his armies, and then the king of kings will take back possession of the earth and establish his everlasting kingdom. And to that I say, amen. (laughs) So what can we take from this chapter that applies to our lives today? That's the important thing to take away. We can learn all this head knowledge But unless we take something that we can apply, it's just knowledge, right? Well, let me ask you a couple of questions. The first question is, whose mark do you carry? God has given each of us the freedom to choose. But with that freedom comes accountability. God's judgment is coming, ladies. And you will choose to face God's judgment either as a believer or as an unbeliever. If you're a believer, somebody who knows that you're a sinner deserving God's wrath, but you've placed your trust in the fact that God poured out his wrath on Jesus on the cross instead of on you, and you have trusted him and received his forgiveness of sin and received his perfect righteousness in exchange, then you won't have to drink that cup of wrath. But if you are an unbeliever, somebody who says, I may not be perfect, but I'm good enough to get into heaven on my own, then you're going to have to pay for your own sin. Jesus, you didn't accept Jesus' payment for it, so you'll have to pay for your own sin. And you will have to drink the the cup of wrath of God yourself. We will either choose to surrender our lives to God, our Creator, and receive God's mark and seal of the Holy Spirit, Or we will choose to believe Satan's lies that our lives belong to us and we can live them however we want to live them with our own desires and pleasures and we will remain under Satan's mark of ownership. So whose mark do you bear? But remember, the choices that you make in this life have consequences and will seal your destiny for eternity. The last question is, what are you doing with your brief time on earth? Like the 144,000, we're called to follow the Lamb and be his witnesses regardless of the cost. You and I only have so much time on this earth, ladies. We can live for ourselves 
and lose our eternal soul in the process, or we can live for the Lord and fulfill our primary purpose, and that is to be his witnesses like these 144,000 were. So what are you doing with your brief time on earth? You know, life is like a coin. You can spend it any way you want to, but you only get to spend it once. And Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for men to die once, and after that comes judgment. So we need to live with the end in mind. We don't know when the Lord's returning, and we don't know when our time on earth is done. There's no doubt that this world is a mess. But the Lord warned us that this is going to happen and that it's only going to get worse. Our hearts should be breaking, ladies, about what we've read today. We ought to realize and understand that this, this stuff that we've read about today is going to happen to real people someday. Hell is real. Do we want our family or our friends or our neighbors to be there? Look to the lady sitting to your right. Look to the lady sitting to your left. Do you want any of them to be in hell? Now that may sound harsh. I don't, you know, I don't really like talking about hell, but I would rather to seem harsh than not tell you the truth and risk your soul being lost forever. So God's calling us first to come to him, and then once we come to him, he's calling us to be his witnesses. May we be salt and light in a dark world that desperately needs us until Jesus comes back or comes to take us home, whichever comes first. And remember, God's most effective witnesses are those who aren't only saved and sealed, but are also walking day by day in his light, set apart for God like these 144 witnesses, shining God's light in a dark world. So is the way you're living your life salt and light to those around you? I pray that it is. So let's make the most of our time while we're here on this earth, okay? Will you pray with me? Father, in this holy moment, I just ask that if there is one woman sitting here today who doesn't know for sure that if she died today, she'd be welcomed into heaven. That today would be the day that she would reach out and step out in faith and accept you as her Savior. And I pray that the rest of us who have already done that, Lord, you would give us the strength and the boldness to be your witnesses, to be set apart, not caught up in the culture around us, not fading in and looking so much like the world that nobody can tell the difference, that we would really be set apart and shine your truth so that you will be able to draw people to you, that we will be weapons against Satan in this dark world and be your witnesses to draw people to you. But it's only through Jesus that we are able to do this. And it's in his mighty name, the name that will stand above all names for eternity, that we ask these things. Amen. Thanks, ladies. We'll see you next week.
Andrea or Laura, they were asking, can you put the first, very first slide back up so that they can get it? And I think we will try to post these online with the lecture today. So if you want to see it more up close, maybe look online and it might, it'll be posted there. We'll try to get it on there.